Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Monday, September 5th, 2022. Hope everybody had a good weekend. We'll get right into it here. The first story at the top of Antiwar.com, 70,000 people protest against NATO in Prague. So this was on Saturday. Around 70,000 protesters marched in Prague. That's the capital of the Czech Republic to demonstrate against the Czech government over rising energy prices, and they demanded an end to sanctions on Russia and an end to support for Ukraine in its war against Russia. What's interesting about these demonstrations is that they included people from across the political spectrum, including the populist right-wing Freedom and Direct Democracy Party and the Czech Republic's Communist Party. In media reports on this, I saw this in Reuters and Politico and places like that, they described these parties and the people that participated as fringe. But 70,000 demonstrators, it's a sizable showing in Prague, which has a population of 1.3 million. The protesters voiced their opposition to the EU and NATO and called for the center-right coalition government to resign. They said the aim of the demonstration was to demand change, mainly in solving the issue of energy prices, especially electricity and gas. So the Czech government, they just survived a no-confidence vote on Friday that was held over the government's handling of the energy crisis that has been brought about by EU sanctions against Russia. And this is really an example of how the U.S.-led Western sanctions campaign against Russia has really backfired on Europe. And Europe is really bracing for a harsh winter as energy prices are really going to be skyrocketing. So people are going to have trouble heating their homes and everything and more unrest and more protests are likely. And now this is especially since Friday when Russia, they shut down the Nord Stream 1 natural gas pipeline indefinitely. And that is pretty significant. That's a major source of gas for Europe. And uh, Russia took that step. They said it's closed indefinitely after the G7, the group of seven announced that they're going to, they agreed to impose a price cap on Russian oil. Um, it's still not clear exactly how that plan's going to work. It's set to, they're saying it's going to be Im- implemented in December. They haven't agreed on what price they're going to cap, try to cap the oil at. Again, I went over this in the last show in a lot of detail, so I don't want to get too into it, but really this all hinges on Russia's participation, Russia agreeing to sell its oil at a certain price. And if Russia retaliates by cutting oil production or cutting off more countries, it could send oil prices even higher. Um, So it just doesn't seem like a very smart plan, but it's really an example of how the U.S. and its allies are kind of flailing in their attempts to offset the energy prices while also keeping Russia's profits low, because right now Russia is making more money on oil exports than it was before the war. And officials in Berlin, they're expecting social unrest this winter in response to soaring heating costs. There was also a rally against sanctions in Germany over the weekend, although it was much smaller than the one in Prague. It was a group of about 2,000 people, mostly Russian-speaking people, people from Russia that live in Germany. They marched in Cologne in the western German city, calling for Berlin to drop its support for Ukraine. But I think we're going to see much more of this, especially as winter comes. 
And this is really, uh, you know, the, the Czech government right now, they just survived the no confidence vote. There's probably going to be more upheaval in governments and, and more people being replaced. And that's really, I think, the best, the only way we could po potentially see the US, the NATO EU policy towards Ukraine changing is if uh, there's more unrest in Europe and governments change. All right, the next one here, this is from Kyle Anzalone. This is from Friday. The Biden administration has asked Congress for almost $14 billion in new funding for Ukraine aid. So now, so far, this is on top of all the other spending bills that President Biden has signed. Initially, when Russia first invaded, the U.S. appropriated $13.6 billion in aid for Ukraine, and that and then there was the $40 billion bill that President Biden signed. So that's $53.6 billion. And it's broken up into different ways. Some of it just goes straight to the Pentagon to replenish their weapons that they're sending to Ukraine. Some of it goes to weapons that are shipped directly to Ukraine. They pay for troop deployments in Europe. Some is like humanitarian aid. And then there's direct budgetary aid that they just hand to the Ukrainian government. So there's all different ways they're spending this money. It's not all going to Ukraine necessarily, but... It's what they're spending it on the name in the name of supporting Ukraine in this war against Russia. So that's what this is. And this is an additional 14 billion, uh, 13.7 billion to be exact. So, you know, that's six, over 60 billion. Uh, that's just massive amount of money that will be the total when this this new spending patch, package gets approved. And this is Biden asking Congress for this money. And the last time we see have seen Congress increase the number that Biden has asked for, the forty billion dollar aid package was initially, I think, thirty three billion is what Biden asked Congress for, and they tacked on another seven billion. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see that again here. The forty billion was meant to last through the fiscal year for the federal government, which ends on September thirtieth. So I've been expecting a new. Biden looking for some more cash to spend on Ukraine. And this is supposed to be short term, uh, this new $13.7 billion one, until they can pass another major package. And it's split up into a few uh, categories here. $4.5 billion will go to the Pentagon for replenishing American stockpiles. Pentagon officials have told the media that they're running low on weapons and ammunition that they're sending to Ukraine. So now all the arms makers, they're getting going to get new contracts to replenish those stockpiles. The spending also includes two, $2.7 in military and intelligence support for Ukraine. So that's included in that is probably some of the weapons packages that they're going to send. And it also includes $4.5 in direct economic support for the government in Ukraine. And that's that budgetary aid. So literally, they take billions of dollars and they hand it to the Ukrainian government, which is a notoriously corrupt government in which we don't hear much about its corruption since Russia invaded. It used to be pretty common knowledge, and it was what U.S. and other Western officials used as why Ukraine couldn't join NATO or the EU was because they were too corrupt, and now we're just handing them billions of dollars. Um, and in, in addition, so that... Aid that I just outlined that adds up to 11.7 billion, and the proposal also includes 2.7 billion to fund the White House's economic war against Russia. 
It includes $1.5 billion to be spent on uranium for nuclear fuel. So the U.S. is is pretty reliant on Russia for uranium. And that's something that Biden hasn't banned. Uh, he banned the import of Russian oil, gas, and coal. But they want to ban Russian uranium, but they're not really in a position to now. So I think that's the idea of this funding is to kind of get uranium elsewhere. And it also includes $500 million to upgrade the strategic petroleum reserve. So as oil prices have gone up, the U.S. has released a lot of its uh, reserves, its strategic reserve. Um, so I guess maybe that's towards replenishing it or upgrading it. I don't know exactly what that means, but it's just all part of this, the economic fallout of the sanctions campaign against Russia. And that, that article, that was written by Kyle Anzalone on Friday. I should have mentioned that. Um, so the next one here, Russia says that it foiled a Ukrainian attempt to seize the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The Russian the defense ministry said Saturday that Ukrainian forces attempted to capture the Russian-controlled Zaporizhia nuclear power plant on Friday night. The Russian Defense Ministry said that Ukrainian vessels with a force of about 250 Ukrainian troops attempted to land on the shore of a lake near the plant, which is located in the southern city of Enerhodor. The alleged operation came as inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency, that's the IAEA, were stationed at the plant. The Russian Defense Ministry said, quote, despite the presence of representatives of the International Atomic Energy Agency at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the Kiev regime once again attempted to seize the plant, end quote. So this accusation from Russia, this is the second time that they have accused Ukraine of attempting to capture the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Russia said that it thwarted an attempt by 60 Ukrainian militants to capture the plant on Thursday morning, this past Thursday. That was before IAEA inspectors got to the plant. It was while they were on their way. Russian installed authorities in the region, they claim that these fighters that were trying to capture the plant were trained by MI6, the British intelligence agency. And, you know, there's no way to verify these claims, but there are Ukrainian troops being trained inside the UK link to an article I wrote about that uh, a couple weeks ago, it says you, uh, the UK pledged to train 10,000 Ukrainian troops within 120 days. That's a lot of troops that they're training. Um, but again, so these claims that Russia said Ukraine tried to capture the plant, they haven't been confirmed, but there has been a lot of shelling in the region. Now, Russia has controlled the plant since March and the territory around it. In the Ukrainian military, they did admit to shelling areas around the plant in Enerhodor, the city that the plant is in, on Friday. And that was the first time I've seen them admit to launching strikes in the area, at least recently. Um, over the past few weeks, there's been a lot of shelling with both sides trading blame. But Russia, again, is the one that controls it, so I don't see what reason they have for bombing the plant. And there's IAEA inspectors there now. And um, so the shelling continued in the area on Saturday, despite the IAEA presence, which resulted in the plant losing its main connection to the power grid. Again, this happened before. The plant is still connected to the power grid thanks to a reserve line. And then Russian installed officials in the region 
they said on Sunday that there was no shelling in the area or at the plant on Sunday. They called it the first day of calm in a while. So that's good. At least hopefully that sticks just because all this fighting and shelling around a nuclear power plant is very uh, concerning, of course. Raphael Grossi, he's the IAEA chief. He said that the nuclear watchdog is establishing a permanent presence at the facility. And there's currently two IAEA inspectors there. And so far, I haven't seen them because there were some rumors that they might attribute blame to the attacks on the plant. But we, I haven't seen them say anything like that. Again, I think it's pretty clear that Ukraine is the one that's been shelling the plant. Um, but about all these other operations that Russia said they foiled, who knows exactly what is going on in the area. But it is also part of this counteroffensive that Ukraine has launched that doesn't seem to be going uh, very well. Russia is reporting a lot of major losses on the on the Ukrainian side, and they're kind of just keeping quiet. And the Western media is also keeping quiet and portraying they've portrayed this counteroffensive as as something really big and major that would happen, but it, it doesn't seem like they've had much success, the Ukrainians. Okay, next one here, more weapons. The State Department approved a $1.1 billion weapons package for Taiwan. So this is from Connor Freeman. He wrote this on Friday. Uh, the State Department, they approved a previously revealed White House plan to supply $1.1 billion in arms to Taiwan. So this is a pretty major arms sale, $1.1 billion. And it was revealed last week that Biden was going to ask Congress for this. So what happens is the State Department approves. This is how weapon sales work. State Department approves it. That that starts a time, a certain amount of time. I'm not sure exactly how long that Congress has a chance to block the sales. But, you know, with all this bipartisan support for Taiwan, you know, th there's no way that they're going to try to block this. The sale includes $355 million for 60 Harpoon air-to-sea missiles, um, Harpoon anti-ship missiles. We The U.S. has sent some of them to Ukraine, 85 million for 100 Sidewinder air-to-air -air missiles. Those are going to be used for Taiwan's fleet of F-16s. They buy a lot of those from the U.S. And it also includes 655 million in logistics support to maintain and upgrade the island's Raytheon-made early warning radar system. So far, this is the single largest sale approved for Taiwan during the uh, under the Biden administration. So this comes again, which I've been going over a lot lately, is that Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan in the beginning of August. China reacted. We knew they were going to react. She was warned. The U.S. was warned. She still went. They launched their largest ever military exercises around Taiwan in response. And the U.S. hasn't backed down one bit. There's been a few more, four more U.S. delegations visited Taiwan after Pelosi keeping tensions high. And now in Congress and in the Biden administration, they're all using these drills that they that they provoked, you know, to say, oh, we got to sell more weapons to Taiwan. We got to arm Taiwan more. And I won't be, I wouldn't be surprised in the future if we see there's been legislation to give Taiwan, you know, billions in military aid each year. And I, I bet some of that is going to start, uh, is going to get passed in the future. And we might start just 
giving Taiwan weapons. All right, the next one here, the Biden administration is mulling actions to limit U.S. investments in China tech. So this is according to a report from Bloomberg on Saturday. The Biden administration, they're considering ways to restrict U.S. investments in Chinese technology. One source told Bloomberg that the action could take the form of an executive order signed by President Biden in the coming months. One of the options being discussed would establish a system that would give the U.S. government the authority to block investments outright. So it sounds like this is following a pattern over the past few years, really starting with Trump's tariffs, the trade war against China. The U.S. has been sanctioning China, creating these export blacklists. Last week, they just restricted the sales of of advanced microchips and semiconductors to China. And that caused NVIDIA, that's one of the U.S.'s biggest chip makers, their stock tumbled because of that. Um, But yeah, this is really just following a pattern. Again, we're not sure exactly what action Biden is going to take, but it looks like it sounds like uh, something pretty major if they're if they're considering giving the government the authority to just block any investment in, in China. I mean, that's pretty unprecedented, especially when it comes to China. You think about all the money that's been made on investing in China over the years. This really shows that uh, things are changing in that relationship. One of the most significant actions that the U.S. has taken in this in these economic measures against China was happened earlier this year when President Biden signed a bill into law banning the import of goods from China's Xinjiang region over allegations of forced labor. Uh, the U.S. has also been restricting the exports of certain goods to China and sanctioning Chinese companies tied to the country's military. Last week, uh, this is the U.S. They tighten more restrictions on semiconductors, and they are considering further action in that area. They really want to hurt China's chip industry, which has actually spurred more innovation inside China. And they now have like the fastest growing chip industry in the world. So sanctions backfire yet again. It seems to be a very common theme in uh, what we're, we're always covering. The Bloomberg report, it also said that the Biden administration is considering taking action against TikTok, the video sharing app that the Trump administration tried to ban. Trump tried and failed to ban TikTok over allegations that data collected by the app is accessible to the Chinese government. TikTok's Beijing-based parent company, ByteDance, they've said that they've taken steps to protect users' data. And it is funny, I mean, I have to point out just how you know, we know from the Snowden leaks and stuff how the NSA has just a backdoor into our phones and can access pretty much anything they want. Um, so all this concern about TikTok uh, is um, just very ironic in that sense. But the economic, all this economic stuff against China, it comes as tensions between the U.S. and China are at their lowest point in decades. And again, tensions continue to rise over Taiwan. So it's just concerning because, you know, one reason why the U.S. and China would, wouldn't be able to go to war is because their economies are so intertwined. But we're going to see, we're seeing these steps towards decoupling. I mean, it would take very long time, probably decades to fully decouple because the economies are so intertwined and there would have to be a major push for that. But we're definitely seeing some steps in that direction. And the incentive for war uh, 
when it comes to the U.S., you know, the arms makers, they have an incentive to keep tensions high, and they're the ones that are going to make money off the conflict. So it's see who's got more influence. Is the corporations that are making money in China or the ones that are making our weapons, uh, weapons for the military? All right, the next one, Israel's Lapid says that pressure on the U.S. against the Iran nuclear deal is working. Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid said Sunday that Israel was applying pressure on the U.S., over the Iran nuclear deal effectively while ensuring that relations with Washington are not jam are not damaged. So the gist of what he's saying is that we're pressuring the U.S. not to return to the nuclear deal, not to give in to, to keep a hardline stance in negotiations, not to give in to any Iranian demands. But they're doing it without being too uh, confrontational, I guess, publicly even though they are always publicly saying that the U.S. should leave and it shows weakness that they're even negotiating with Iran. But this is really all about um, Israeli election season because Lapid took a shot at Netanyahu, who was the prime minister when the Obama administration negotiated the JCPOA. And he was very confrontational publicly. And Lapid says, you know, all that was for nothing. They still signed the deal. And Israel's election is going to be on November 1st. And Netanyahu's a real contender again. So it's just become a pretty hot button issue in Israel's election season. But Israel's pressure does seem to be working. As I went over the other day, the U.S. slammed Iran's latest response in the ongoing EU-mediated negotiations, calling it not encouraging and said it was moving backwards. We don't know the exact details of Iran's response or what the U.S. has objected to yet. It was kind of a slow weekend when it comes to U.S. news because um, I guess Monday is Labor Day. But um, So I'm sure we're going to get more details on that this week. But for now, it seems like the Israeli pressure is working. David Barnia, he's the head of the Mossad spy agency. He is traveling to Washington on Monday, and he's expected to meet with William Burns, the CIA director. He's going to brief... Senate and House committees on why Israel is against the deal. So it's just not really looking good with the Israeli pressure and the U.S. response to what Iran put forward. Um, and Israel, we know, has a long history of launching covert attacks on Iran. And Iran, they, uh, on Saturday, they said that they boosted their readiness of their air defense systems and equipped their cities with new sort of civil defense systems. So maybe they have a reason to expect some sort of Israeli attack as tensions are high over the deal and the negotiations. All right. So the next one here, this is from Jason Ditz. The U.S. is reportedly growing its military presence in Syria this weekend with the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, that's a British-based organization, saying that they have set up a third military base in the northeastern Hasake province. So this is not a good sign. Um, it's close. It's in the northeast there by where the U.S. supports the Kurdish-led SDF. And this uh, is just really a sign that the U.S. presence isn't in Syria isn't going to end anytime soon if they're expanding bases. The main base in this area is at Al Omar, which is one of Syria's oil fields. The site was established during the Trump administration when Trump reversed his withdrawal. 2019, Trump said he was going to pull out of Syria. He reversed it and he said that we're going to stay to secure the oil. But <laughs> very upfront about it. 
Um, so that's why we see the U.S. has a military presence around oil fields and gas fields in eastern Syria. And it keeps this resource out of the hands of the Syrian government, out of Damascus. It's part of the economic war against Syria and the Syrian people. So not a good sign. And it just doesn't look like uh, that presence is ending anytime soon. And we had that recent escalation a couple of weeks ago where the U.S. bombed, um, launched airstrikes in Syria, and that provoked rocket attacks on a U.S. base, on a few U.S. bases in Syria. So it's just always a chance of escalating into a wider war. But that's it for the news for today. We got a lot of good viewpoints. As always, we have a good one from Ray McGovern uh, talking about the U.S. and NATO response to the war going over the sanctions and just kind of what's happening uh, to the Europeans as a result of this policy. But that is it for today. Uh, you could contact the show, news at antiwar.com, donate, antiwar.com slash donate, buy some merch, buy some t-shirts and stuff like that in the link in the description or the show notes, and subscribe on YouTube. If you're not subscribed already, share the show with your friends and all that good stuff. And I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.